Welcome to To Be Continued, a Stonecross Symposium podcast. In today's episode, Anna Shaw Hawk discusses developing an artistic practice, drag, and growing up in Ottawa's historic Shanghai restaurant with Don Kwan and Ed Kwan, also known as China Doll. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's too bad. So this is all my recording lost? Yeah, basically. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember, like, you know, you told us a, a bit about your own work and yourself growing up as one of the Quans and then what community looked like. So we'll just backtrack as much as we can. It's, it, it's sucky, but that's okay. We roll with it. Your computer doesn't record my voice. No, that's the bum part. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So are we ready for round two? <laughs> okay. All right. So Don, do you want to share with us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm Don Kwan. I'm a local visual artist um, based here in Ottawa. I was born and raised here in Ottawa. Um, now I have a studio in the outskirts in the Ottawa Valley. And my family, we also run and operate the Shanghai Restaurant, which is going on almost 50 years. We opened in 1971. My artwork deals a lot with my different experiences growing up in Ottawa as a third-generation Canadian, first-generation-born Chinese-Canadian. I use a lot of my experiences growing up here in, within the restaurant and it kind of percolates into my art and seeps into my, my work. How did growing up in diaspora feel for you? Like, did you have a lot of like lateral community as support, family? Um, you mentioned Shanghai. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Shanghai? Yeah, growing up, the Chinese community was very small back then in Ottawa. Chinatown was, you know, considered maybe three blocks. Um, so everybody kind of knew each other. My family, my parents' generation, like the older generation, they were all very familiar with each other. So that way, the kids growing up, like my generation, my brother and sisters, my cousins and in-laws and all that, we were inner city kind of chill kids all growing up, getting into trouble getting into like our little shenanigans being born and raised downtown Ottawa. So Shanghai is known as the first Chinese restaurant on Somerset Street. It, you know, it's developed so much into its own sort of being. How did growing up inside the Shanghai environment help foster your own creativity, your own creative practice? Yeah, growing up, it was like living in two different worlds. We had the home life, which was, you know, my bedroom underneath my parents' roof. And then I also considered the restaurant, growing up in the restaurant where my parents and my grandparents worked, my uncles and in-laws, they all worked there. I consider that part of my home as well because that's where, you know, we had a lot of family dinners. We learned a lot of our uh, lessons in life, you know, like our value system and our work ethic. We learned a lot of that through the restaurant, helping out every summer. And just watching others work, like others, adults in our community, you know, working and trying to carve a life for themselves so they could raise their own families, they could uh, get ahead in life. 
and then think about retirement themselves and things like that. And then there was Second Life, which was kind of outside our Chinese community bubble, which was, you know, going to school, learning different things like French and English things. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult inhabiting those two worlds, like growing up in diaspora inside your own community, but also the specific world that Shanghai provided along with the support of your siblings and your larger inside community and then having to basically like walk as a lot of like diasporic third world kids have to like third space kids have to do like straddling two worlds at the same time. Right. Yeah. I think growing up, like we never consciously was aware of it. Like we never focused on it or delved or thought about it a lot. It's just growing up later on life gets more complex. You kind of look back and ask yourself the, the five W's, you know, who, where, when, and why, and all those questions kind of start rising the older you get. For me, like in my art career and just my journey in general, like I've learned that there's a, a six W, which is the whatever W. <laughs> what does the whatever W look like for you? Oh, it's just the everything you kind of, you have to relearn, like forget what you've been brought up with and forget what you've learned and just start fresh and yeah. search for your own truth and search for your own answers. So both you and Ed are queer. What was it like growing up in the local area as queer East Asian kids? What did that mean for you both inside family, but also with like larger community? Well, I, I, ne I never think twice about uh, being gay because, Don, well, Don and I, the story be, between me and Don, uh, the way Don came out, I mean, I was out since I was like 16 nightclub days in Hall. Remember Hall? And then anyway, so Don and I, you know, we grew up together, but we, we didn't come out to each other. But uh, we went to, we were in Los Angeles at the time, and we went to a Sandra Bernhardt concert. And Sandra Bernhardt was like, she opened the house lights, like, where are my gays? And then Don and they just looked at each other. I said, so, so Don kind of came out of the closet <laughs> that way. We knew we were both gay, but, but you know what? Back then, honestly, it was the worst thing to reveal. There was a lot of trauma and there was a lot of stories. Like, you know, I knew about Stonewall and I knew about queer history in North America and most of the stories were about negative and how badly they were treated. And, you know, I didn't want that upon myself. So, and, and also there wasn't any role models out there for me to, you know, relate to. And from what I read over the years before internet, that's how old I am. You read all these things like in China, being gay is not, is it taboo? It's like a, you know, foreign. You'd probably be like, go to a concentration camp if you even came out. Yeah. Like, it's forbidden, it's forbidden love. Yeah. Going back to my parents raising us and how we were raised in a very uh, loving community and a community that, you know, got, we all got along for the most part when we were younger growing up. My parents' household, my, both my mom and dad were very, you know, tried to create a very loving, inclusive space, not just for their children, but also for my cousins and other people other families. Every weekend, it was very uh, 
common that maybe six or seven other cousins would be sleeping over. We'd all be having dinners together and we'd all be enjoying our times together. Um, and then my parents would put food on the table and then head off to work. So we kind of raised each other while our parents did their 18-hour days. We realized that they worked a lot. One of the lessons that I learned at a young age was the value of you know, hard work. And growing up in a household that big with all our aunts, uncles, mm -hmm. Asian immigrants coming through our doors, we were always raised to respect our elders. And we also spoke Chinese at home and also sent to Chinese schools. So we won't lose our heritage, our culture and whatnot. So I'm very thankful for still knowing how to speak Chinese fluently. Yeah. Yeah. The older you are in my family, the better your Chinese is. Because, you know, like Ed spent a lot of his time hanging out with um, elder, the elders. Me, not so much because of the generation gap. No, but I used to play mahjong a lot with the, with the, the seniors. Yeah. We're very Asian Chinese golden girls back then. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So, Don, you were talking about how, you know, growing up as queer, also, like, along with just, like, the, the general fears of outing yourself or, like, even claiming your queerness meant so many negative sort of taboos or stereotypes or violences that could, that could potentially, uh, ex that you could be exposed to. You also talked about how, like, there wasn't necessarily role models uh, to look to. Um, can you both speak to the nature of, like, what is your own individual practices Dawn, as you know, as a as a visual artist and and uh, China Doll as a performing artist, what did that mean for your work to produce role models, at, like you yourselves as role models, when you knew what the hunger and like the appetite that never got fulfilled at a time when you needed it? What has that done for your work now, um, Dawn? Do you want to go first, and then Ed? Yeah, sure. I like I'm older now, so I can look back with hindsight and I can look back at my track record and, and realize, you know, like what I did back then to fill those needs, fulfill those needs. Um, and, you know, I did it unconsciously and now I can look back and, you know, say that I, you know, before there was internet, I had searched out in libraries, let's say in a high school or something like that. But it was always that fear of, being outed or if you took that signed that book out you know who mm -hmm. would find out that you signed that book out or things like that um right but like i was saying like i didn't have role models but our household was very loving and i remember like growing up i was 15 or 16 and every summer we would have a summer job at the restaurant so we would be helping out doing what we can wash dishes make egg rolls make dumplings things like that just to alleviate the workload off of our parents and um i remember one summer i it was my father and i we would always sit at the back table the table's still there the two chairs are still there to this day and then it was um just before september and we had to go back for our fall school and I said to my father I said you know like I said uh, I have something very important to tell you and I came out to him at that time 
And his reaction was so unexpected. He literally said to me, he looked at me in the eyes and said, I don't care. And then he twiddled his thumbs, like together, represent something. Obviously, it was like two penises or something like that. <laughs> but it, it was humorous and it made me laugh. Yeah. And it completely put all my concerns to rest. That's beautiful. And the thing is, I went back to high school and I was still confronted with those enormous coming out queer issues that we have. And I was already struggling with like cultural identity. I spent a lot of the latter years in my high school kind of like internally trying to push the envelope. Once I graduated, it was almost like an open world. Like I, I had the freedom to kind of be more, I learned, I found my voice. Mm-hmm. Chanadal, what about you? Well, growing up, like in my teens and uh, in the, my youth, um, I was always uh, a rebel, the, kind of like the black sheep of the family as a middle child. So I kind of did the opposite of what I was told not to do. So I went out a lot, uh, hang out with, made a lot of gay friends in the community because we were all like, we were all in one boat. So we all supported each other. If you fall back, I'll catch you. So to this day, I still have friends that I've made from the 80s that are very loyal. To, uh, we're very loyal to each other. I have so many fond memories of queerness, the examples like um, going out to San Francisco when I was young because our grandfather lived out there for like 25 years. So I would go out there and, you know, in my early 20s, late teens anyway, so I would see all the gay culture there and it was fascinating to me. And I always knew I was queer since I was a little boy. I had to see with my own eyes what it was like and being influenced by all that and continue my life as is. I consider myself an introvert extrovert. I mean, I've been only doing China Doll now. It's almost 15, it's 15 years now doing China Doll. Mm -hmm. Being a clown in a gown, you know, pig with a wig, chick with a dick, right? That's how I refer to myself. I mean, it sounds weird, but that's how I uh, look at myself. When did you first start performing? You were saying 15 years ago. how did that come about? Yeah, 15 years. Like we had a private karaoke party that we uh, had uh, a karaoke host named Carmen. And he was like the Andy Warhol. He was like a retired school teacher that hosted karaoke. So it was around almost Halloween. And Nicole, the birthday girl, wanted someone from the Shanghai staff to come out and sing. And we we're like, oh, no, 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 I'm too shy. Oh, oh no. But I was like, well, I got a wig. I might as well go up there and sing because I love singing anyways and all that pop culture. But Don said, well, you need a name. And then Don just out of the blue came up with China Doll. Oh, that's awesome. And just like that. So it just went up and just like sang my little heart. I think my first song was At Last by Etta James. And that's actually my signature song. After all these years, I just belted out. I always had this fire in my belly. So to perform like our father was a performer he did all the the things in church and welcoming immigrants to ottawa and getting them settled in and whatnot so he was a really a community builder and i learned a lot from dad dad was a a big performer going back to uh the story about nicole renting the restaurant for her birthday party and it being a karaoke party 
we we had reservations about it. We didn't want to be that restaurant that um, had karaoke because we had preconceived notions that you know, like oh gosh, it's those Asians that love karaoke or are doing karaoke. It's like stereotype. So we we were like, you know, we'll do it, but it's got to be a locked door. It'll just be one night. Mm-hmm. So then we on the night on the actual night we had a great time and it was. Like karaoke was hilarious and it was fun, and we always had Halloween parties like once a year where Ed actually had a wig, had sunglasses, and he would dress up, come out of the kitchen, and kind of do a little bit of a cabaret show. Hey, I went into my mother's maternity clothes, so you know, huh? Oh, that's wicked. Yeah, but that was always just once a year. Double my wardrobe <laughs> would shine. So. And then in the kitchen, you know, Ed would sing like his favorite Olivia song while he was cooking. So we all knew Ed had a great voice. And then Nicole, the birthday girl, she was like, you know, trying to get someone to come up and sing. And the first person we thought about was Ed. So yeah, China Doll was born. And we actually enjoyed karaoke and the bar did well. People were having a good time. And the, the most important thing is we enjoyed it. So yeah. we, we started embracing it and we invite re invited the the host Carmen back and then he became part of the family. And then the next thing you know, it's like now we have karaoke weekly, sometimes three to four times a week. It's an Ottawa institution all on its own now. Um, yeah. yeah. Growing growing up was uh, very interesting. Um a little side note. Um also, we were raised to go to Chinese church, so we went to the Chinese church in Ottawa, and um, I actually left the church when I was, I don't know, like 18 or something, because there was an issue of the church being split between gay, the, the, the topic of homosexuality and lesbianism, and it didn't jive with them, and I was like, love is love is love in my mind. So I had a lot of conflicts with going to our own Chinese church and I kind of abandoned it because I thought, oh, it's just a, a way of Asians to hook their kids with other Asian kids in Ottawa, whatever. So I had all these notions. So my my mind was I was like spinning and I was so I decided to go to the Metropolitan Church. So it was just United Church and it was, I talked to the preacher at the time there about my sexuality because I was like what, 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 how do I look at religion and, and spirituality and being gay? And then he would tell me about the doctrines of the Bible. I was said, and I didn't accept it because, you know, the Bible didn't accept queerness. So I was like, well, who do I look to as a role model? So I was disappointed again. And I said, I'm going to just believe in myself and my own God and my own stillness with my relationship with God. That's it. Yeah, I think at that time, too, like, the Chinese community was getting bigger. There's also a thing, like, you know, like, the community, it was um, frowned upon to have others take care of your your elders. At the time, you know, there was rumors of a Chinese community um, retirement home, like a senior's home being built and things like that, so... It was almost like people were giving up the old ways of what they had 
uh, embraced before and life was getting more complex. You were working more hours. The community was getting bigger. And then this happened in the church. So that whole divide kind of, kind of made things more complex. But these were lessons we learned at a very young age that, again, being queer is not a positive thing. Mm-hmm. I think how we've kind of transformed that is, and I think it, I th- like looking back at it now, now that we have time to reflect in 2020 at what we've done in the past 25 years, like, you know, we, I don't think we consciously thought of becoming a hub. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shanghai has become the hub for so many like young um, newly pr- uh, developing their own practices, artists, so many queer folks from across communities. It's, you know, one of the things that like Kara and I and so many, are, of, so many of our conversations with folks, uh, senior artists in the area, they speak fondly of Shanghai, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And young folks now talk about Shanghai. So like, there's something that both your parents and grandparents, and then what your generation has done so I'm so curious about like, how did that, I know you said there wasn't, you know, an action plan, let's say in place, but how did that come into being? How did Shanghai start to host events? Um, and what happens when, as, as both of you are talking about, you know, there's lateral conflict about being gay and also occupying your Chinese identity um, and your parents having a restaurant that like, you know, it, it it sits in the middle of community, but also is a business. And so there's, there could be lashback on, um, on who they choose to host for, right? Yeah. I think our parents did a really good job at kind of creating the foundation. Um, they made their mark as, you know, people that helped build the community to create a stable business that... Um, had longevity and its support and in their own way they supported others um so when we inherited those hours um and that the restaurant you know my dad had a stroke in 1994 so he was like the patriarch he was the steering the ship kind of thing so we all dropped what we were doing i had was in um toronto at ocad and then I decided to come back to help at the restaurant. To, and then same with Ed. Ed was working elsewhere and my siblings. We all had other careers and we all dropped what we were doing to kind of come back to help the family restaurant in time of need. Mm-hmm. And my dad had a stroke. So not knowing that we were going to stay there for 20, 30 years, like, you know, life, you, you don't have a path in front of you. You just make the choices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we inherited my parents' work ethics too, you know, like seven days a week, 18 hour days. They were so long and laborious and super exhausting. And our generation, we were like, oh my God, like, how could you do this? How could we survive? This is impossible. I remember there was a defining moment we decided to, to say, you know, this is, if we're going to be doing these long hours, we have to do it and enjoy it ourselves and, and put ourselves in it because it's like living in the business. Mm-hmm. So we slowly discovered that that we did to make feed our souls and our creativity, 
the easier it was to do those long hours, to do those seven days. Not 18 hours. We reduced it to 12 hours, things like that. Still fairly long, but yes, yeah. Yeah. So we, we learned to, to do things early on. And that was, you know, one of the things was uh, having art shows. You know, my sister was Cheryl. She was a creative. She was in animation at the time. And she had paintings in, in my parents' place. And I was just coming back from art school. So my focus was, you know, sculpture, installation, and art history. And mm-hmm. so I came back and I, you know, I still want to, I still want to pursue a career in the arts, but how can I do it? So I decided to create the space in the restaurant using my sister's artwork and then eventually my own artwork. And then I think that kind of resonated with our customers. Mm -hmm. They started approaching us saying, you know, like you guys are, you guys are improving the lighting in the restaurant and you're putting art, your own artwork up. Like, would you be interested in putting my artwork up? Mm -hmm. So we really learned to tap into like the creative community in Ottawa. So that kind of reinforcement, those little baby steps and experiencing those reinforcements really gave us um, a lot of strength like, to keep moving forward. And and what we were doing was right because, uh, you know, there was positive feedback. And, and at the same time, we were feeding our souls. So there was an empty kind of miss in Ottawa, Ottawa was considered kind of dull back then. Right. Like a sleepy town, a sleepy government town. So, you know, things would quiet at nine o'clock. would be, you'd be twiddling your thumbs mm-hmm. two in the morning. So we, you know, the creativity and necessity is the mother of all invention kind of thing. We learned to do things to kind of spice, spicing up our own lives. So in a selfish way, it was doing things like DJ nights and playing records at the restaurant and making cocktails and being creative with dishes. It was a way for us to kind of tolerate the long hours and the hard work. Well, back then, like in the 70s and early 80s, there was like not even like LGBTQ plus, like on the down low, it was very underground. In Ottawa, with uh, you know the nightclub here, nightclub there, bar here, and it was very secretive. And because Ottawa is very conservative, it was kind of like fat cities, so the gay community was very closeted in many, many ways. Because if you came out, you know you'd be subject to losing your job or whatnot, right? To be lynch mob in a sense. Back then, no, not that ex- serious, but but there were but we. People of all walks of life has gone through Shang, and we've had generations of people, you know, three generations of people coming in and out, and we got invited to the best parties, home, you know, <laughs> home sitting, but we really got to know the community of all walks of life from, you know. I think also, like, watching our ancestors, our grandparents, our parents with their own struggles we realized it was a very difficult life ahead of us. And, you know, like we dealt with racism. My parents were silent about it. All the staff at the time, you know, they just accepted it as their lot in life kind of thing. But then growing up, you know, I 
like we kind of um, you know, interpreted it differently. Like we learned about injustice very early on. So I think what comes out as for us is we empathize with others that have a voice that aren't heard or we can really relate to um, people when they have something to say or uh, you know something to express yeah. and they're kind of they feel alone or other or misfit um, we can kind of relate to that so yeah. I think that's why we, we do a lot to support Don and I even like I've been to China a few times and Japan Australia so I've traveled a lot in my younger days but anyways when I took Don to China in 1997 during the, the Hong Kong going back to China after the 100 years of the lending city. And so we saw a lot of things that, you know, I mean, I, I kept on thinking if our parents never left China and we are all born there, we would, be able, we would most likely be living, because we were living out in the country in a small town called Hui Ping in Guangdong province. So from what I saw, there was a lot of um, working poor, but I saw a lot of simplicity and happiness there. And it's not how much you have, it's what you do with what you have. And they utilized what they had and very giving. And so seeing that their lifestyle made me very proud of where, our ancestors came from. I mean, they would they would cook and use hay to shove in a in an oven to cook, and we pee and poo in a hole like that. But there's a lot of barter system, so that was a great thing. And and when Don and I went, I mean, being gay, gay, we're like we're surrounded by matchmakers, women that would would bring photos and portfolios of their daughters. And we were like, no, we're not going to tell them we're gay. We're not going to tell them we're gay because they, they probably won't even understand. Stand it anyway, or we might be ostracized. Who knows? I didn't. We never came out to them anyways. But 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 you know, we we spoke Chinese, so oh, you could take, you can learn to love them. You can they immigrate them to Canada? Yes, yeah, learn to love them. I said, no. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is, we came back and we told our parents that they. The, the matchmakers in the village brought like like binders with um you know potential brides and they were all like baseball cards you know in their little slots um and our parents kind of laughed and they were like oh my god if they only knew you guys were the two <laughs> boys in the family so so we grew up thinking it was very normal for us but then you would hear stories outside you know like anti queer anti homophobic uh, stories and beatings and whatnot. Yeah, well, yeah. If we were raised in China, if we if we were raised in China, we would be like the sound of music. The kids, like you know, wearing curtains and hanging yeah. in trees. Who knows? But also that you know that simple life. There was a, a real sense of generosity and um, pride that you went through all those hoops all those struggles to bring your family to a different country and now you're successful, right? So they always looked up to that. And 
you know, every, I think every immigrant really strives or, or everybody strives to like improve their lives, but you get that, that kind of tangible, um, reaction from your family back home in China three generations later. It really is very heartwarming. Like I, when Ed took me to China, and that was the first time I went to China, it was my mid-twenties, being born and raised here in Canada, I had preconceived notions of how I would feel. I thought I would feel other. I thought I would feel uncomfortable or awkward. But when I arrived, I, because I saw others, I wasn't the visible minority there. I felt very comfortable. It was the complete opposite of what I was feeling. So I was really overwhelmed with comfort and security. And then going back to my parents' village, like everybody spoke the same language as us. There's something incredibly powerful and beautiful in that. Yeah. And I could, yeah. and we could speak it fluently. Like we could go to a corner store. Yeah. Or exchange money or order order dinner. Where mm-hmm. here you would be asked like six different questions, mm-hmm. like where are you from? Yeah. What language do you speak? Oh well, I don't speak that language. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then it's so complex. Where there it was so free and um, so connecting to your roots, I think, is really important. Yeah, I want to go back to something you spoke about, Don. You were talking about how, like, for instance. You know, when you have immigrant parents, uh, like first generation immigrant parents or, or second generation immigrant parents, um, and they're in, in needing to protect themselves out of necessity of the space that they're in, where the reflection is not majority of their own, where they silence their own uncomfort, like their discomfort and the pain and interactions with racism. But at the same time, what, what both your parents did, Mama and Papa Kwan, while being silent about certain things also advocated and so beautifully created space for folks who experience similar yet different moments in the same geography. And I think that speaks so loudly of both what Shanghai as a place and really a being has become because of the people that invested their time, your parents, your grandparents, yourselves, um, that it's, and you're, you're all carrying that legacy forward in such incredible ways. Um, it, it's, it's both really as someone, as a queer racialized person, it, you know, growing up in like multiple geographies, like that's something that, um, also offers me sustenance and like offers others, uh, in a similar situation, like hope and nourishment, um, in ways that like Don, when you're saying, you know, when you go back to visit uh, where your parents or your grandparents are from that moment where you don't have to like make all the answers visible where you can just be. And there's something so incredibly beautiful about that. Yeah, that's very, that's very kind. Yeah, my parents never were the kind of people to like give advice. They were more the people that taught you through their actions. So yeah. Their hard work. Stop crying. Yeah. It's all my God. Wipe your tears. Yeah. yeah. Well, mom and dad passed away last year, so it's been difficult. Yeah, mom passed. Actually, today's her anniversary. I always, every month is an anniversary, so. I'm so sorry, loves. So it's not almost a year. It's almost a year, three more months to go. But, you know, I am, I am still in there. My both parents passed away 
in the same room, uh, like a year apart in their home that we, we are still living in. So I'm always reminded of, you know, the good, bad and ugly stories of just living there in a, in a, the house is very quiet now, but it was always something going on. And I cherish those, uh, memories. I mean, we all should cherish our families because you only get one family unless you're queer. If you're not near your family, you make your own family. So that's which I've also started. Uh, I mean, for years that I've added, kind of not added. I mean, um, been blessed and grateful for being in other people's lives, queer or not. But we all share the same love yes. and comfort, and you know, you, life is a banquet. So let's eat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, trying it all being, I always used hysteric glamour. So all that pop culture that I absorbed growing up is an influence, heavy influence on what I do. I mean, um, um, I'm just in the three-year making of um, a documentary in China Doll with Dale Wendell from Adventist Films. He, after three years of filming, we're finally editing. Uh, a, do, uh, a gay, well, it doesn't have to be gay, but a featured documentary on China Doll, like a day in the life of China Doll, like the world according to China Doll. So that will be released hopefully this year. And uh, I hope you guys can see that from my perspective. Because China Doll, it's not about me. I'm not like a narcissistic sociopath, cray cray, like Donald Trump. <laughs> I always focus on the people around me when they're with China Doll. So yes. I always, it's giving, it's giving back to the community and being one-on-one -on -one or getting everyone involved and, and finding a happy place. I mean, through song, through karaoke or bingo or whatever yeah. community events we do, it's all for love and everything has an intention. So just try to live a well-lived life. I wish yeah. that for the world in this scamdemic pandemic mm -hmm. times of COVID. Yeah. 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 We're really fortunate to have had the opportunity to like, you know, create a space that's inclusive, mm -hmm. that where people can come feel comfortable, welcomed. Um, and, and it's about like, like I always loved how everyone from, every different vantage point or view or race or uh, political background, everyone, because a restaurant is a restaurant. It's, it's a public space. Everyone, you come in and mm -hmm. whether you like it or not, you <laughs> be exposed. And then, and then, you know, the lights will turn, turn down and then it'll come out as China doll. And then those that never expected that to happen, are all of a sudden part of it and then you know you're exposed to something that you're not typically used to and it's not as threatening or as awkward as maybe you thought so i love that we've kind of opened up people's minds to think differently so we've invited them to kind of engage in different life styles or conversations you know like there is break those stereotypes break like think differently about each other, embrace, mm -hmm. have more empathy with others, you know, and their struggles. So. 
Well, China Doll, I just want to mention, I'm just backtracking. I just want to mention some of the more memorable events at Shanghai. For me, we had a, a centenarian party, someone that was 100 years old, and they were generational, and they, came, they brought their 100-year-old mother on a private party. And we've had weddings there that were so beautiful. And we actually had a Carleton University Frosh Week busload of toga wearers coming through a karaoke night on a Saturday night. And I was just sitting there in the corner, minding my own business, and one of them, I don't know if they were drinking or whatever, decided to just steal my wig and run off with it down the street and never came back. And I was like mortified, but it was returned the next day. But that was a memorable story. And then they rushed off to another party. Or we had another bus full of Marilyn Monroe's gay men dressed like Marilyn Monroe in the, the white iconic dress and the wig. And they like maybe 15, 20 of them just cascaded through the, the full dining room and just, Wrecking havoc, but it was so fun. <laughs> I think so. I think there's something to be said about stories from Shanghai um, that could possibly be a future project, Don. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, you should write a book. <laughs> Cara and I are both so thankful for both of your works, for sharing your archives with us, the Shanghai Family Archives, um, we're both really looking forward to having folks come in to see your works uh, independently and collectively and to also listen in and to hear your stories. Um, so I just want to once again thank both of you and, um, and hopefully we'll reconnect in the near future to have more conversations. Thank you. China Doll says, Coming. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for um, inviting Ed and I to have a show together, too. It's like, I think this is the first time we've ever been invited as uh, together. It's our honor and privilege. Thank you, my dear. Thank you, my little fortune cookie. Thank you, my little <laughs> pork couplings for tuning in. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Halloween. Thanksgiving. <laughs> To Be Continued, a Stonecroft Symposium podcast is produced by Finn Sun, Anna Shah Hawk, and Cara Tierney. Music provided by bensound.com. Thank you to today's speakers, Don Kwan and Ed Kwan, also known as China Doll. The podcast is part of Carleton University Art Gallery's virtual Stonecroft Symposium. The symposium is organized in conjunction with the exhibition to be continued Troubling the Queer Archive, curated by Anna Shaw Hawk and Cara Tierney, and presented at the gallery in fall 2020. The exhibition and podcast expand conversations around local queer histories and futures. We are grateful for the support of Carleton University, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Stonecross Foundation for the Arts. The Stonecroft Foundation promotes education in the visual arts and fosters the public's appreciation of the visual arts. Find out more about the Stonecroft Symposium by visiting quag.ca. That's C-U-A-G dot C-A.